Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney and you're welcome to the Maritime Ireland radio show about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this month's edition, the seventh in the series, sailing around the world non-stop and alone for between eight and ten months on an older boat without being allowed to use modern technology. A Limerick man, now living in Kerry, is ready to go in a race with rules set 54 years ago. That was 1968, and that, that was a different era in technology. That, that was around the time that man was going to the moon and that kind of technology. So the, the rules for the racer, we, we only use technology that was around in 1968, and that really suits me because it makes the race affordable. Pat Lawless determined to be the first Irish sailor ever to sail non-stop around the world. We'll hear about the Greenhold fleet of Irish ships, now bigger than the former national fleet of the state-owned Irish shipping. Well, Arclay Shipping are one of the great success stories of the modern era. They were founded in 1959 by the Tyrrell family, uh, grown in stature since. And we hear that ladies have revived coastal rowing at a fishing port. It's great, it's very social, and I suppose it's different in ways. I mean, it's nice to have a bit of variety and to try something different, especially when our location is perfect on the sea. And there's a lot more as we voyage through Ireland's maritime sphere. I don't know the answer to that question because it indicates serious problems in the fishing industry, which the chief executives of the country's fish producer organizations have been telling me about over the past month. The price of fuel is preventing boats from going to sea, and they say the supply chain of seafood could be affected. The European Union has provided a fuel subsidy, which several countries have introduced, but not Ireland. The industry is to meet with Marine Minister Charlie McConaughey, but surprisingly, the situation hasn't got a lot of public attention. You heard there from one CEO, Patrick Murphy, of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation. And the situation comes on top of the reduction in the size of the Irish fleet because of the bad deal Ireland got in the EU-UK Brexit agreement. What if there is no Irish fishing fleet catching fish? Now that's a thought to consider. Sixty-six-year-old Pat Lawless is a carpenter and former fisherman from Limerick, now living in Ballyfeddeter, County Kerry, whose family has a strong maritime tradition. 
His late father, also named Pat, sailed around the world single-handed himself at the age of 70, though not in the manner his son intends to do. Pat plans to spend eight to nine months alone on his 36-foot yacht, traversing the world's most dangerous oceans, without the benefit of modern technology, in the Golden Globe race, non-stop around the world. I suppose the main motivation is it's a race. It's, I, I wouldn't go around the world unless it was a race. It's the race that attracts me. Like, if I wasn't going in the Golden Globe race, I had intended to sail with my wife down to the Mediterranean in the the islands in Greece and up Croatia and things like that but that's all changed now but it's if it wasn't a race I wouldn't leave European waters are gorgeous like I wouldn't leave I would say maybe the Caribbean at some stage but anyway here I am in the race yeah now let's describe for listeners the Golden Globe race it's a very special kind of race it was the first single-handed race around the world it was inspired by Chichester and interesting one of the people that inspired Chichester was Conor O'Brien from Fines Island, who was first person to sail around the world in a yacht, and so like, but it all came from from that, yeah. And then that was 1968, and that, that was a different era in technology. Like that was around the time that man was going to the moon and that kind of technology. So the the rules for the race are we we only use technology that was around in 1968, and that really suits me because it makes the race affordable. Like if you're going in a Van de Globe boat and that the budget there is 10 to 30 million to enter like so we're we're just peanuts compared but our boats are snails but they're safe and and it's a more basic sailing i think i we're all biased in our own things but if you're sailing the van de globe boat you have computers on board telling you how to get the boat up to maximum speed and you have a shore crew telling you when to get up and when to go to bed and that kind of wouldn't interest me. It's more basic sailing, but the technology—it's great to see technology developing. It is a part of the game, like, but it's just not for an old fella like me. What you're saying, really, is it sailing by the seat of your pants? It is. It's pure basic sailing. Like we're not allowed wind instruments to tell us the wind speed. You have to judge it yourself. And our logs are old-fashioned trailing logs, the stow logs or whatever trailing logs you use, and. Yeah, navigator is a, a six and not a GPS, you know, GPS allowed on board and that. So it's, it's gone right back to basics. And that doesn't cause you any concern. You seem to be saying you're looking forward to that. Oh, I am. My biggest fear is that I wouldn't make the start of the race, like, you know, for getting the green card or whatever reason. But I am really looking forward to it. Yeah, I've, I've years put into this, apart from the last four years where I have decided to enter. When I was a child, I built a boat when I was 12 it was only a simple small punt but when I was sailing around that was around the time when the Golden Globe race and was on and the Ostar all the single-handed transatlantic races and the River Shannon was my Atlantic you know and so it's the dream has been always there but I never thought it would happen you know it's just and it became available and I said yeah I go for it You were also a fisherman? Yeah, I was born in Limerick and I got married in 1981 and about four or five years later I had a workshop and I was reasonably all right or never all right, self-employed, like, but and I decided to move to, to make my living at sea and the only way I could think of doing it was to go fishing and I became a fisherman and I fished deep sea for 10 years and then I came in and I, I served my time as a cabinet maker so I went back making furniture and lobster fishing for the summers for another 10 years or more. So, but the, I think the time fishing will hugely stand to me. Like I, I have seen serious weather off the west coast. I bought a big boat in Iceland, in partnership with with Okahani's Joe, and 
and I fished with the Flannerys in in winters off the west coast of Ireland and like between Rock Island and the Porcupine Bank you will see weather now it's not as southern ocean weather it's same wind but like different seas maybe but and different boats bigger boats but the fact that you have seen and you know the power of the waves and the power in a very I was in a depression 940 in Rock Island one time and it was hurricane force winds like and the seas weren't huge but the the wind blows the tops off the waves. If you stood on deck when you're level with the tops of the waves, it's like a powerhouse. But the weight of that water hitting the boat, it increases the weight to make the boat heel over. Like I, when I looked at the first race, I saw, well, not the first race, when I looked at 2018 race, which inspired me a lot to enter, actually, I saw that a lot of them put on solid spray hoods. And I said, God, I wouldn't do that because I have seen the weather. And none, not one of those boats finished and there's people putting them on again but it's only a personal thing like I don't have huge experience at this level you know but the fact that you have seen that kind of stuff it just adds to your knowledge a bit but it's still only all self-invented knowledge <laughs> It sounds frightening the description you have there of the fishing Ah uh, no, no, no it's fishing is it's a fantastic way to make a living I love that it's a bit of a bachelor's life and that but like you have great camaraderie on the boats like it was up to 16 on the boat but normally only about 6 to 10 on the boat and you have fantastic you have fantastic company and that you know and you become like a little menshed and you all get on really well you know it's fine it's lovely and bad weather is just a part of the day but it's easier sailing because in the fishing boats you're working in the bad weather and the, with the self-steering and the sailing boat it steers itself like you just get ready before a bad gale comes in sit in you must have a lot of sailing experience then from the first boat you built in the shannon right up to what you have now so what are you sailing in this race i'm sailing a saltram saga 36 i picked the boat for safety and it has a small cockpit small port wheels double ender heavier than the rustlers which did well in the last race and I but I picked it for safety and it actually is quite fast downwind it's faster than the rustlers downwind I believe and you can check the track of the previous race the speed is there like and I have gone faster downwind but I'm slower upwind and I need more wind I have a shorter mast than the rustlers and a heavier boat so I need more wind but the southern ocean it will suit the southern ocean so how I get on between the start in France down to Cape Town, you're four months then across to South America to Cape Horn and up past the Falklands is still kind of dodgy weather and you, in that four months you will probably get knocked down several times and maybe do a 360 so you have to prepare for that but preparing for it, it's, it's part of the race you know that, that's fine going into it and the boats are capable of that so the mast is everything to me, the mast is the most vulnerable part of the boat, the five boats that sank in the last race all sank because they lost their masts and the mass went through the boat, like, you know. So you've had to do a lot of preparatory work on getting her ready. Oh, yeah, it's endless, endless. I was talking to Fanon Murphy and Murphy's Marine Yard in Valencia about it, and he said, you're a bit like me. He said, a new boat is never finished, it's delivered. And I think a Golden Globe race boat will never be finished, it'll start. You know, it's, it's endless, the work, but jobs now are all small. They're, yeah. It's an amazing race. Irish people have tried before, they haven't got around. It's compared with an Everest. So few people have sailed successfully in this race compared with those who have climbed Everest. 
Well, yeah, there's a high failure rate. First race, nine started, one finished. And the second race, 18 started and five finished. And there has been a sixth finisher since he stopped in Australia. And he sailed the second half and he's coming back into this race. There's three of the 18 race back in the 22 race. So he's in the Chichester class. If you stop once, even though he stopped for three years, he only stopped once. So he came back. So he's the sixth finisher of the Golden Globe race in a different class. If you stop once, if you stop a second time, you're out. But if you stop once, you're in a Chichester class because Chichester stopped once on his journey around the previous year to the 68 Golden Globe race. It fascinates me to think one would even take part in this race, Pat. Well, it's daft, I know. And I know how many times I've asked myself why, and I, I really can't come up with the answer. It's it's the fact that it was a race. And I, one reason you'd want to do well for your country and your family and your sponsors, you know, and I've had great sponsors. The FLA group in Watford and Green Rebel now have come on board, a fantastic, another indigenous Irish company, global company, and will get bigger. I know they've fantastic young energetic workers like you know uh, and I have other than Irish Power and Process and Nike's Newman's and several other you know small even a bar in Dingle that's quite small he he sponsored my prop Kennedy's bar it won't pay him to sponsor me I don't think like but you know people are so kind you know yeah it's great and individual people then giving me donations and everything is, is it's it's really moving you know and you need that sponsorship because obviously it's a costly race to go into it is. I thought I'd do it for 100000 and it'll be about 240000 But I cashed in my old age, private old age pension and I sold my boat to my nephew. It was the boat that my father sailed around the world and, and, and anything else I could sell. And I have raised everything I could. And during COVID, I made furniture, so I started making barometers and stuff and I sold a good few of them. And I had three raffles and, you know, I had been fundraising. And then people, as I said, the old metal system in Ireland is great. It's still there. The people, the ordinary people of Ireland are unbelievable. They're, you know. So it's not just a sailing event, effort, it's kind of financial management, um, financial fundraising, all to get to the start line. Yeah, the planning to get to the start is bigger than you think. Filling in forms and getting insurance and uh, media stuff that you do for the race because they're making documentaries and you're, you, you spend a lot of time at that. You know, so that's all good. Now, we're down in Crosshaven, sitting at the Royal Cork Yacht Club, where you've been up the road talking to young people. There's also a programme to encourage young people to learn more about the sea through the race. There's a schools programme organised by the race, so they're in... They'll be tied up to school here in Crosshaven. They'll be tied up with a school in France, so they'll learn geography as we sail around, and they'll learn... French, I hope. Uh, they have a new French teacher coming in, just in coincidence, in the school. So that's all good. And they have an interest in sailing. They, they ask fantastic questions. Kids are they're really so nice and kind. And yeah. So you enjoyed your morning there? Oh, it was lovely, yeah. yeah. Young kids, innocence and everything. It's a boys' school, you know, and the, and the teachers are so nice. People are nice. And a genuine interest in the sea? Oh, yeah, fantastic questions. You know, interested and little innocent eyes asking really interesting questions, you know. There's one young fellow there and he's sailing for Ireland with Optimus, you know, and only a young fellow like, yeah, it's great. Just tell me then, you had to do a number of qualifying races to even be allowed to enter because you're going to be on your own for months and then maybe eight, nine months? Well, I had enough miles up between fishing and sailing and that I had way more than enough miles up. 
to qualify. So I just had to do 2,000 solo non-stop miles with the self-steering and the boat set up in the way I will use it for the race. So I did that in 2020. I sailed to the Azores and back. It was September, August, September. And lucky enough, even though it wasn't a purpose, I met a storm on the way home. And the boat really was fantastic, like up to 55 knots. Now, it was a summer storm, end of the winter, or in the end of the summer, so the seas weren't huge. But the boat really went so well. It gave you confidence, you know. And I had been out in gales since, but that was the first kind of storm I was in. And I couldn't believe it, how easy it was to sail and how comfortable and how well the steering worked. An area self-steering, and the stronger the wind gets, the better it is. The Hydrovane is the other good one to me for the race going on. What happened in the last race? They're not as powerful but they're simpler and they act as an emergency rudder. But uh, I think the, the areas is better, you know, because if you were in a very heavy storm, the hydrovent could let the boat broach, whereas the areas won't, because it, it steers it with the ship's rudder and it, it's just a personal thing, yeah. So what's the plan now? The boat's still in preparation. What's the plan for departure and start? So it'll go back in the water at the end of the month. It's in Valencia, Murphy's Marine, and it'll go back in the water once I have all the gel coats sealed up again and the anti-fouling put on and a few more jobs done underneath. And then I'll sail to Dingle, and then I'll leave Dingle about the 7th and sail to Limerick, probably stopping in Kilrush on the way up and finds on the way down, and I'll sail back to Dingle. And then I'll depart Dingle around the 13th, and I'll sail to Waterford. And the weekend after, is it the 17th, I think, I'll depart Waterford and I'll come to the to Crosshaven here. And then I'll be here for a couple of days, maybe two or three days, and then I'll sail from here on the 24th, on Sunday the 24th, for Zhejiang in Spain, where the prologue race is on. And then after a week there, on the thir- we, we have to be there by the 6th. I might stop in Los Abel's on the way down, actually. And on the 13th, we sail from... Zhejiang to Les Abels de Lan and we spent two weeks there there's a race village and a lot of things organised and then on the 4th of September we leave Les Abels de Lan and all going well I won't stop again until I get back to Les Abels de Lan and there'll be no stop <laughs> Confidence Well, fingers crossed, touch wood <laughs> And saying that he touched the wood of the table at which we'd been sitting during the interview So did I, fair sailing Pat In fact, very few people have done what Pat Lawless is attempting. Only a hundred have ever sailed solo non-stop around the world via the five Great Capes. His sponsor, Green Rebel, is the company engaged in offshore wind projects, founded by another former fisherman, Pierce Flynn from Ballycotton in East Cork, who I interviewed on a previous edition of Maritime Ireland. Pat's brother Peter tried to sail non-stop around the world last year, though not in a race, and we followed him on the program. But he had to abandon his attempt after his boat Waxwing was damaged by an unidentified object off Portugal. To the shipping industry next, and the green-hulled Irish fleet, Arclo Shipping, now bigger than the former state-owned Irish Shipping. That's according to the June edition of the UK shipping magazine, Shipping Today and Yesterday, which devotes eight pages to the company. Nigel Lawrence is the magazine's editor. 
Well, Arclough Shipping are one of the great success stories of the modern era. I, I class the modern era as anything after 1960, but I'm a bit of a dinosaur. Uh, they were founded in 1959 by the Tyrrell family, and they've just grown uh, grown in stature since. They've got a large fleet of coastal vessels, and a few years ago they also had two new handy-sized bulkers, much bigger ships for ocean travel um, and they're a company that have done very well their ships always look very smart they're very well kept on the outside i can't vouch for the inside but i would imagine that's pretty good as well they come over as a very successful company and it's a real pleasure to see that you described them very well as the the green shipping line effectively Right. Well, they're very distinctive. You see an Arclo vessel and you identify it immediately. Uh, they do stand out, and that's very good PR on, on their part. Well, they would be bigger than Irish shipping. The state line used to be. Oh, yes, they're, they're the biggest shipping company in Ireland, and they're, they're well known in certain parts. I mean, particularly in the Shannon, uh, where they take the uh, processed bauxite. Uh, they load that as alumina, and that's distributed all over the Western world. Eight pages is a huge amount of coverage in your magazine. Well, if we're doing an article, we like to do it in depth. Um, I mean, some other magazines probably just do a, a, a basic uh, run on these things. We like to do things in depth and get the full history of the company and the full details of the vessels that they're running. The head office of the company is at North Quay in Arklow, but they also have this very strong Dutch presence. Yes, that's true. Yeah, they've expanded very much. I mean, obviously, Holland has always been a place uh, for coastal shipping, and Arco shipping have got uh, some vessels whose masts will be lowered and can go under uh, low bridges, which means that they can be used for river services as well as, as open sea. The first coaster registered under Arklow Shipping was way back in February of 1970, and that was a Dutch-built uh, coaster. Yes, it was. It was, uh, it was called the Darrell, yes, and it was. They, I mean, they started in a very small way then, uh, but it grew very quickly, and they, they started to get new ships, and... Uh, and they've expanded ever since. Some of those ships having been built at one stage at the old Verome dockyard uh, down in Cork Harbour. In Cork, absolutely, yes. yes. Well, what future for a company like this? Obviously the management is extremely competent and I would see them going from strength to strength. The Greenhold Irish fleet, they started in a different delivery. Yes, uh, they, I think they, they kept the whole colours of the vessels that they bought. And then eventually they decided on this uh, green livery, which has, I think, been very successful for them. And what would you say has been the underlying basic success in the way they've prospered? Obviously, they've got a very good marketing department and they know the trades that they're dealing with. Uh, as I said earlier, the um, alumina trade has been very good for them on, in the River Shannon. And uh, they're just a well-run company. Their move into deep-sea tramping, as you described it, was a successful one also. Yeah, they have two deep-sea vessels. Uh, they're, they're obviously very successful. They're Handymax. Uh, Handymax means anything under 50,000 tonne dead weight. 
and I believe these are in the 30,000, 32,000 tonne bracket. Um, and they're very smart ships. Uh, we did feature a photograph of one of them in that article, um, near the end of the article. The names are really, uh, I, see, I see the Arclo Resolve, as you say, the Arclo Spray. They, they really have managed to get enough names for 56 owned and managed ships. That's an enormous number. It's quite an achievement, yes. Uh, they've got somebody thinking up good names all the time. A successful story overall? Absolutely, yes, yes. The success of Arclo Shipping, seen by Nigel Lawrence, editor of Shipping Today and Yesterday, which features the Wicklow Company in its June edition. Now Anton O'Callaghan has a roundup of other maritime news. By next month, the Alpha and Bravo Kinsale Head gas platforms will have been totally removed, after standing on the seabed for 42 years. During that time, they extracted 2 trillion cubic feet of natural gas from rocks beneath the sea that were formed in the Cretaceous geological era around 100 million years ago. At peak production in the mid-1990s, with 24 wells, Kinsale Gas enabled Ireland to develop its national natural gas network. PSE Kinsale Energy Limited took over the wells from Marathon until Kinsale Gas depleted and production ceased two years ago on July 2, 2020. The work will continue until August, according to Fergal Murphy, Chief Executive of PSE Kinsale Energy. All of the platform structures on both Alpha and Bravo platforms are being fully removed as part of the decommissioning project. This includes the top sides above water structure and the jackets underwater structure. Definitely the end of an era. The Marine Institute and the Socio-Economic Marine Research Unit at NUI Galway are conducting a survey of the marine sector and marine-related businesses as part of their regular reporting on Ireland's ocean economy. The results will be published later this year. In addition to general economic figures, this year's survey will examine the impact of COVID-19 and other external factors on marine businesses. Killybegs Fishermen's Organisation and Sinbad Marine Services have signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the global floating offshore wind developer Hexacon AB. They say it is a new approach for fishermen to get engaged and influence the development process in offshore energy. Also on offshore energy development, the Simply Blue Group, an Irish developer in floating offshore wind wave energy, has announced a second offshore wind project for Northern Ireland. Olympic Offshore Wind will provide combined capacity up to 1.3 gigawatts of power from off the county down coast. Their first northern project, Nomadic Offshore Wind, was announced earlier this year. Another memorandum of understanding that has been signed is between the Marine Institute and its Portuguese equivalent, the Instituto Português do Mar e da Atmosfera. This is to enhance strategic cooperation on marine research in the Atlantic Ocean. Cork County Council engaged a contractor to remove the wreck of the trawler MV Scepter at Union Hall, West Cork. The wreck removal by barge to an overseas licensed facility will result in it being disposed of environmentally, according to the council. Not far from Union Hall, at Court McSherry, long-awaited dredging of the harbour was scheduled for this month, but has been postponed until August. Before she left office, 
the outgoing Lord Mayor of Dublin, Alison Gilliland, maintained the casting of the spear tradition, the first time it had been done since before the pandemic. The tradition dates back 531 years and bestows the Honorary Admiral of Dublin Port title on the Lord Mayor. And Dublin Port Company is to develop a second container depot as part of its 50 million euro, 22 hectare Dublin Inland Port, which is sited 14 kilometres from the port itself off the M2. When fully operational in early 2023, this will add 4,000 storage capacity to the existing 6,000 TEU containers facility, which commenced operations earlier this year. Lifeboats have been named at Dunmore East in County Waterford and Union Hall in West Cork. The Dunmore All-Weather Shannon-class lifeboat was named William and Agnes Ray after the Manchester couple who provided its funding. In the Waterford fishing village, it replaces the station's Trent-class lifeboat, which had been on service since 1996. During those 25 years, that lifeboat, the Elizabeth and Ronald, launched 412 times and brought 821 people to safety. Union Hall's Atlantic 85 lifeboat has been named Christine and Raymond Fielding after the Cork doctor and sailing enthusiast and his wife from Monkstown, who provided the funding. Alpha Marine of Wicklow have added a new vessel to their fleet. It has been named the AMS Adventure. The RNLI's most westerly shop in Ireland has opened its doors on Inishmore, the largest of the Aran Islands, to raise vital life-saving funds for the charity that saves lives at sea. The new shop is located inside the island's lifeboat station at Kilronan Pier. The Department of Transport, in response to recommendations from the Marine Casualty Investigation Board, has issued a warning marine notice about rowing. It draws particular attention to the need for training, says those involved should take appropriate courses and stresses safety requirements. This is notice number four of 2022. And finally, the state agency Inland Fisheries has issued a warning notice about pike and coarse fishing to remind anglers that these species are subject to national regulations which limit catching to one pike a day, four coarse fish and that it is illegal to use more than two rods when fishing. Historically, the agency says, Ireland has been known for salmon and trout fishing, but now Ireland is also being hailed internationally for pike and coarse fishing. The regulations apply to both visitors and natives, so take notice. The board warns that offenders will be prosecuted. And that's your roundup of the National Maritime News. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. listening to the Maritime Ireland radio show. Now, more about that warning to anglers which Anton was reporting there. Here's Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland, which has put at over 300,000 the number of adults in Ireland who enjoy angling. Hello, Tom. Good to see you again. It's hard to say what the fishing will be like later this summer with all the odd weather we've been getting. But one thing is for sure, July and August are typically the busiest months of the year for angling. And not just for salmon, trout and sea anglers. Course and pike fishing picks up now too, especially in terms of the number of people having a go. I mean, historically Ireland has always been known for its salmon and trout fishing, but the country also has a huge reputation for its pike and coarse fishing. However, the national regulations around pike and coarse fishing might not be as well known. Okay, 
So we have special conservation measures to protect pike and coarse fish under national bylaws. It's very important that every angler, including novices and experienced anglers alike, and also families going fishing for the first time, know the rules to avoid any potential fines or prosecutions. Starting with pike first. Right, pike are one of the largest freshwater fish species in Ireland and can reach over 15 kilograms in weight. What coarse fish such as bream, roach, tench, rudd, perch, they tend to be much smaller. Some of these species can get pretty big too, over 10 pounds for bream, but they're not so ferocious. Under the National Pike Bylaw, there's a bag limit of one pike in any one day. This means that an angler can only kill one pike a day and must carefully return any other pike caught alive. The same bylaw also prohibits the killing of any pike that measures longer than 50 centimetres. If you catch a pike more than 50 centimetres long, it must be carefully released alive. Now for coarse fish, we have the coarse fish bylaw. Most anglers in Ireland don't eat coarse fish, but for those who do, there's a bag limit of four coarse fish in any one day, meaning that if an angler catches more than four coarse fish, they must be returned safely. In addition, any coarse fish that measure longer than 25 centimetres cannot be killed. Meanwhile, there are other regulations that apply to all anglers. Did you know, Tom, it's illegal to fish with more than two rods in Ireland? On the subject of rods, did you know the only legal way to catch fish in fresh water is with a rod and line? It's also illegal to transfer live roach from one water body to another. And finally, the use of live fish as bait in rivers and lakes is prohibited. Now, I'm only telling you this because breaches of fisheries legislation can result in fixed penalty fines of €150 Euros and the seizure of fishing equipment and even criminal prosecutions. That's not a great way to end a fishing adventure. Before I go, I'd like to mention catch and release fishing. Now, catch and release is a way of fishing sustainably with a strong conservation ethos. Any fish caught is handled responsibly and immediately is safely released. Often coarse anglers use keep nets to hold fish till the end of their session. Then they might weigh them or take a photo of the haul before releasing them safely. But as summer temperatures climb, keep nets can be stressful places for fish. So we recommend using the largest keep net you can, or even using more than one keep net. We also recommend that you carefully consider the welfare of the fish you're catching and maybe reduce the amount of time you keep your fish before releasing them. For anyone interested in angling or trying it out, there's an extensive network of very active clubs, associations and federations all over the country that organise coaching events and competitions. There's also a dedicated website for angling in Ireland at fishinginireland.info with really helpful information about regulations and bylaws, directories and resources. That's all I have this week, Tom. Tidelines. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Through the dark night, far away, I am dying, forever crying, to be with you, who can say, we are saved. A maritime community there enjoying itself at Garnish Pier near Allahees in West Cork. As a 70-year-old local fishing boat from nearby Dursey Island was returned to the water. The Dursey Clipper, which we reported about in our last edition, and was given to the men's shed by Jimmy Harrington, the oldest resident of Dursey Island, 81 this month, happy birthday Jimmy, for the restoration.
I was given the honour of doing the official launch where Castletown Bay Rowing Club from that great fishing port were the first to row the restored boat. It's a club restoring itself the sport of rowing through its concentration on getting young people involved in coastal rowing, as club captain Jack Sullivan told me. Well, Castletown Bay Rowing Club was on the go a long time. I suppose I'm only involved in it for the last 10 years, I'd say. Um, so... We've been focusing the last couple of years on, on underage, which is paying off for us. We have a lot of kids in, and uh, we're you know, looking forward to plenty of competition. Now, again, we hadn't any competition, really, for the last two years. So, like I said, we're looking forward to the season ahead. Plenty of kids, and the kids need to be enjoying it, which is important. Um, we were in a school regatta there earlier this year, National School regatta. That worked out well. Do you know, we had plenty of kids in, and... That was a kind of teaser for them, so a lot of those kids have joined up the club. Um, there are around the 12s and some of them on the 14s, and we have a lot of on the 14s from last year and on the 16s, so they're all eager to get at races now, and that's what we'll be doing for the rest of the year. That's good for the sport, isn't it, getting so many young people in, because lots of sports are trying to attract young people? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you're not going to go anywhere if you don't have kids. Um, I mean, adult drawing is great, but, you know, you're limited in, in time. So it's it's kids as far as that, really. Um, and even if they drift out of it, you know, once you've given them the basic of rowing, they can always come back in as they're, you know, if they move away out of the out, out of bear or go to college, they could try rowing in college. And, you know, they can always fall in and jump in a boat and they'll, they'll, they'll you know, it's a skill set they'll always have. So, And this is the coastal rowing? Yeah, coastal rowing and uh, I suppose open water rowing. It's it's we do kind of fixed rowing and an open water, which would be a slider. It'd be similar to river rowing in 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 one fashion, only that you'd be out in open water and you'd be you'd be out in weather where you wouldn't be in uh, in river rowing. Um, is it a tough sport? Well, I suppose any sport is as tough as or as easy as you want to make it. Um, like some people come in and they're you know, not focus on competition. Other people come in and they're very competitive, so we try to cater to everybody. Um, the people that want to put in the time and, you know, excel in it and get into serious competition, we do as much as we can for them. And the people that just want to come in and enjoy the row and, you know, hang out with their peers, we, we, we try to cater to them. So it's... It is, it is a tough sport from, from, I suppose, as far as sports go. Like, it's a very physical, you know, you're using all your body, um, do you know, compared to something like cycling, do you know, you can go out and have a four-hour cycle, like, uh, would be similar to maybe a one-hour row. So that's kind of where it's at. What's the attraction for it for yourself? I suppose I live, do you know, grew up in an island, um, live in Castle Bear now, on the sea. Um, I think the time you put in and the benefit you get out of it is great do you know um, the return for the amount of time you put into it is very good compared to something like you know we used to do a lot of cycling once and like the, you do put in immense time in, into that compared to compared to rowing um, and then the, the I enjoy the kids do you know it's nice to be able to give back and uh, do you know watch them coming on watch them developing and you know you bring in a batch of 20 and you know, like I say, there'd be two or three or four competitive and you can see them sharpening up and, you know, you know, everybody enjoys it and uh, it's good to see that, you know. And it's a sport for men and women? Oh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, sure. There's, there's no more men and women. It's just us now. It's, 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 them days are gone. We can't right, and, and we have one lady from Castletown Bay Rowing Club. So what's the attraction of the sport for yourself? Um, I suppose I first tried rowing when I was a child um, a few years ago when my, uh, some of my family members were involved in it. And I suppose I went away and did other things in the meantime. And um, I suppose I took an interest in it a few years ago. And I suppose I find it very social. Um, it's a good workout if you want a good workout. And I was asking there, is it a tough sport? It is. Um, I suppose if you are competing, it's um, you know, it's 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 very hard, all right. Yeah, and so you have to be, I suppose, fit and strong. But again, if you put in the time and build yourself up for it, um, and a lot of young people getting into it, which is a, a good sign, isn't it? Oh, it's great. It's great. It's very social, and I suppose um, it's different in ways. I mean, football and things like that aren't for everyone, so it's nice to have a bit of variety and to try something different, especially when our location is perfect on the sea. And um, I suppose we have great boathouse and you know, good slip and good amenities, so it's it's fantastic, and it's it's great to see the numbers. I suppose rising every year. Um, and, and for men, women, boys and girls? For everyone. Um, I suppose we offer social rowing as well, you know, for, I suppose, um, some of the older members if they just want a bit of social rowing. It's hard to get the time for everything, so um, if you just want to go out and have a row, um, we try and organise that. Susan Power and the great attitude to enjoying a maritime sport. Paddy O'Sullivan is the club president and proud of what's been achieved. The club had... Uh, a I say a lean period until a couple of years ago, until the ladies came in, right? And the ladies then adapted the offshore rowing. And uh, Miriam Sheehan, uh, Kleena and a few more of them um, went to um, Hong Kong to the World Championships right, yeah. to, um, three years ago. And then last year they went to Portugal and they qualified, they came uh, first in their heat as such in the second heat so they did very well Miriam then uh, rode in the single skulls which is the offshore rowing equivalent of river rowing right they're a bit of wider boat uh, it's in open seas and uh, she did very well but except that Portugal is a particular uh, uh, on the river there in Lisbon outside the sea um, there's a big flood tide so all the boats congregated at the first buy so unless you're ahead of them the pack you're, you're it's like Crack car crash. You know? So she did. She did well. And no, no, no. since then, then they, they, the club has adapted a policy of introducing youth into the club, which is based upon the kids at the school, 12 and 13 upwards, right? And that seems to be working at the moment. And you have Susan and Jack uh, looking after the kids, and that's a policy for the future. And hopefully, it'll come good again. You know. And there's a long history to Castletown Bay Rowing Club. Well, the club goes back to the last century. It started with fishermen and such, uh, and it was always a traditional bank holiday they got on August Monday. And you had famous crews from the south and f- from Castellan, and of course you had the original Casey from Sneem rode there. And my uncles and my father rode against them in, in those days. And uh, uh, it's 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 a holiday time for people cast down they congregate around the August Bank holiday weekend same as a lot of other places but it's particular for Castletown it's it's, it's structured into the calendar forevermore as such you know? I also met Paul O'Shea of Dursley Boat Trips which operates from Garnish Pier who took me out into the bay yeah, we're on a Red Bear Rib here now, 10.5 metres long, uh, 3.5 metres wide, with a pair of 300 Mercury Verados on the back. 
And how many boats has the company got? We have presently now uh, three boats where our new, our latest boat is coming tomorrow actually. That's a big investment in really tourist operations. Yes, look I suppose we're, we're all locals here you see and the thing is I suppose we, we saw an opportunity here uh, in, in 2019 to show off the area where we live in. We're all, all the lads that work here with us are from the area and I suppose we're very proud of, of, of where we're from, rural Ireland and everything. And I suppose the, the, the Bull Rock is as unique to us as the past it is to the people down south along and the Skelligs north of us. So, so we'd be operating tours out to the Bull Rock, is it? We operate tours out to the Bull Rock, yes. Weather dependent, of course. We also operate um, tours in the harbour in Castlebar. And we're in Garanish now. It's a fairly well-known historic fishing area. Yes, there was a, the, the last big fishery here was during the 70s, between 1973 and 1980, where approximately 23 boats fished for mackerel here inside this little bay from the point of the island, over there as far as the point of Filei where we can see now. All of that, of course, time has turned it down, the fish are nearly gone in that? Well, you see, I suppose the, the, the previous mackerel fishery, the same fishing before that, lasted for a period of maybe seven years, and, and this also was roughly the same. Uh, the, the, the mackerel came later and later every year, and un unfortunately the, it came to a point where it was too late in the year to get out with small yards, you know. And coming back to the boat and the business, how are things going now? Well, we were very happy uh, with, with the way things worked the last few years. We upgraded our boat several times to arrive at what we have now. But uh, I, I fear with the loss of the cable car this year in Dorsey, and, and I, I think the fact that people have less money in their pockets than what they had a few, you know, the last few years with COVID payments and everything. And, and I think the, the price of car hire, the price of fuel, the cost of living has contributed nearly to the perfect storm now where we are. But you're very determined if you're getting another boat to make three of we are, yes, you see, I suppose we had a situation there the, the fall of last year where we ordered engines and the engines uh, didn't come there as yet they're not here, promised in the middle of July, so we thought to, to, to guarantee continuity with the service that we should get another boat. Probably that we don't have work for three boats, but we, you, you, you absolutely need continuity, you know. You're very determined. Yes, we're, we're not going to leave this one go. Paul O'Shea of Jersey Boat Trips. There is a natural tunnel under the Bull Rock on which a lighthouse was manned from 1889 to 1991. It passes to the centre of the rock and was said to be a path to the underworld and is still usable on a good day in a suitable boat. Marine protected areas are becoming a major topic, but which there's not total agreement. As Dr. Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, tells us now. There's been a lot of discussion in recent months in Ireland about marine protected areas. What is a marine protected area? What does it look like? How would it restrict activities within the area of interest? With all this talk, it's been very hard to actually visualize what a coherent network of MPAs would look like. Following the publication of the Fair Seas Report, Revitalising Our Seas, an MPA map of Ireland was published. This map shows 16 areas of interest which could be potential MPAs. An area of interest was defined as a key biodiversity hotspot for one or more species of conservation interest. The map presented defines just under 36% of Ireland's marine waters as MPAs. Given that currently only 2.1% of the Irish Maritime Area is designated as an MPA, 
all under the EU Habitats Directive, this is an 18-fold increase and exceeds the 30% designation required under law by 2030. The publication of this report has, not surprisingly, caused quite a reaction. Those who are interested in MPAs, but maybe not directly affected by them, have welcomed the report. Indeed, some coastal communities are disappointed they have not been included as an area of interest. Understandably, other stakeholders, especially the fishing industry, have not been so positive and feel very threatened by the contents. It's important to state that this is not a list of MPAs that will be designated, but a first look at the data to identify potential areas of interest that could be explored more deeply. This should include extensive stakeholder engagement or all those affected parties. Fair Seas is a coalition of seven Irish NGOs and three of them, the Irish Royal and Dolphin Group, the Irish Wildlife Trust and Birdwatch Island, accessed all available data to map and see where these biodiversity hotspots for species of interest occurred. This was not all the relevant data that has been collected, but all that was available. There are more data out there which will hopefully be included in the future to enhance and further define these areas. Clearly there will be huge debate over whether these areas are suitable for MPA designation and engagement with all communities that it might affect is essential. MPAs are not purely designated on their marine biodiversity but include a variety of other factors including economic and social issues. From a coalition of environmental NGOs it is important to use available data to start the debate. Five species groups were considered in this study. Marine mammals, seabirds, lasbrobranchs, commercially exploited species and seabed features. These were all brought together into GIS and mapped to see where the overlaps in distribution and abundance were greatest. It was a process that took many months of hard work to identify the 16 areas of interest described. It should be remembered that it's not the Irish NGOs that designate MPAs, but the state under the Department of Housing. They are charged with identifying, designating and managing MPAs, but following months and months of talk, it's really important to start looking at the available data and what areas could potentially be considered. Extensive stakeholder engagement and discussion is essential, but it's not the remit of Irish NGOs to lead this process. We will of course contribute and try and engage with those interested parties through our own platforms, be they meetings, newsletters or social media. But it is really government agencies must drive this engagement forward. Later this year, legislation which will provide the legal framework for the designation and management of MPAs will go through the door. This is an important first step in the MPA process and we encourage all those interested, affected and concerned individuals and organisations to get involved and be informed and shape our future seas. Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. North above, the 47-foot Westport Expedition yacht of Charlotte Canaan from Mayo, which, with a crew, many of them Galway hooker sailors, completed an Arctic circumnavigation of the world in a transit of the Northwest Passage north of Russia, has been back to Ireland after being sold to France. Crewed exclusively by women, as they themselves told me, the yacht put into Dunlera en route to Greenland on another expedition, about which its leader, Mark de Gomez, told me from the boat in the port. Um, it happens, this boat was, was uh, bought um, a few years ago by, the, um, by um, a French uh, foundation uh, that um, wanted to uh, do expeditions in the north. So they, um, they brought the boat to, uh, 
to La Rochelle in France. And um, and this year they weren't using it for uh, for sailing, so uh, we rent the boat for our expedition. So that's that's how uh, we came out with um, North about. I live in La Rochelle, and I was seeing the boat. I had this plan of um, uh, climbing and sailing expedition in Greenland, and I went to ask the the owners of the boat if it was okay to use their boat, and they were very happy about it. So. We uh, we um, reach an agreement and uh, they let us the boat for for expedition. Famous boat in Irish terms, having already been in the polar areas and done the North about voyage. Yeah, we are we are eight on board. Uh, eight on board. So there is four sailors and the captain. Um, there is three climbers and uh, one photographer. Uh, so the aim is to go to Greenland, to the east coast of England. Uh, we go uh, the east coast of Greenland and uh, to open new climbing routes. Um, so the climbers are um, willing to um, to climb walls that have never been climbed before, um, and they are aiming to do big walls, which means that it's um, it's a wall of uh, more than 800 meters, and you sleep in the wall when you are climbing. It will take them maybe three to four days to get to the top. So they they have all the gear to sleep on the wall while they're climbing. So um, um, this is the aim, and we are sharing also experience between the the climbers and the sailors. So the climbers are learning how to sail, and the sailors will learn how to climb a little bit. What is funny is uh, indeed uh, like um, we are in an Irish boat, um, and uh, I learn how to sail in Ireland. Uh, so I'm Spanish. Um, I live in France for. Quite a while, even almost uh, 20 years, but I actually learned how to sail in Ireland um, in 2013 uh, in Glenon's um, Glenon School in um, Baltimore. So, um, so before that, I didn't. I've never been in a boat before that, and and I went one year um, as a volunteer to Baltimore in in Glenon's sailing school. I learned how to sail, and then I did a few sailing trips, and then. Uh, some races also like solo races across the Atlantic and then um, and then got into expeditions and um, I went to Greenland in 2019 and then we are doing this expedition this year. Marta Gomez and North about on its way to Greenland and she learned her sailing in West Cork. Amazing how the Irish marine sphere, boats, places and people resonates around the world. And my thanks to Frank Allen, Nakdoon Lera Harbour for his help in contacting the current North about expedition. Next, our regular report from Birdwatch Ireland, which looks after the protection and conservation of Ireland's wild birds. Niall Hatch is also looking at marine protected areas. Ireland's marine protected areas must increase 18-fold by the end of the decade in order to restore critical habitats, safeguard wildlife and address the climate crisis. This is according to a new report commissioned by the Fair Seas Campaign, a coalition of Ireland's leading environmental non-governmental organisations and networks, including Birdwatch Ireland. Fair Seas is urging the government to designate a minimum of 30% of Irish waters as marine protected areas by 2030, up from the current figure of 2%, which the group says is wholly inadequate. Recent assessments indicate that two-thirds of Ireland's coastal habitats are in an unfavourable condition, with an alarming decline of 90% in numbers of iconic species such as poor beagle and angel sharks noted. Marine protected areas, or MPAs for short, are areas of our seas and coasts legally protected from activities that damage the habitats, wildlife and natural processes. 
In 2019, the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage initiated a process aimed at expanding Ireland's network of MPAs in the coming years. The Fair Seas campaign initiated its research to help accelerate the conversation. The report by Fair Seas shows how it would be possible to protect 36% of Ireland's ocean territory, enabling the country to meet its 2030 European targets. This would help to protect, conserve and restore vulnerable and important species and habitats, as well as ensuring that these habitats can act as huge natural carbon stores. It identifies 16 areas of interest for MPA designation in Irish waters, including eight coastal areas stretching along the coast of the Republic of Ireland from Donegal to Louth. These places are home to critically endangered sharks, globally important seabird colonies and animals threatened with extinction which rely on these areas for breeding and feeding, such as puffins and blue whales. The report is about kick-starting the conversation among stakeholders and decision-makers nationwide. It aims to ramp up significantly the process of building an effective network of marine protected areas in Irish waters, which would enable Ireland to meet its 2030 commitments with the best possible outcomes for nature, climate and people. It has used scientific research and available data to identify the potential areas most in need of protection. Its ambition is to see Ireland become a world leader in marine protection, giving our species, habitats and coastal communities the opportunity to thrive. There's no getting away from the fact that Ireland is a laggard when it comes to protecting and restoring nature on land and at sea. We've been endowed with a wealth of marine life, but are squandering it. Our extensive coastline supports thousands of breeding seabirds, but species like the puffin and kittiwake are now globally vulnerable. For example, Irish kittiwake populations declined by 32% between 2002 and 2018. While seabirds have some protection on land where they breed, there's no protection for them at sea where they forage for food. Ireland's sea territory is huge, and it's high time to protect and restore large areas for them and other marine life. If properly planned, marine protected areas can lead to more stable and sustainable coastal fisheries, with added benefits of increased tourism and public enjoyment of marine life. While a majority of the public in Ireland supports the needs to have MPAs in principle, there will be objections to exactly where they are located, their boundaries and their rules. This is why discussions with local communities need to start as soon as possible, with political support to implement what is best for Ireland in the long term. You can support Birdwatch Ireland's vital marine conservation work by becoming a member. For full details, please visit www.birdwatchireland.ie. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland brings us to the end of the July edition of Maritime Ireland, the seventh in the programme series, Voyaging Through Ireland's Maritime Sphere. And you can hear all previous editions on our website at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie. We publish regular maritime news on Twitter at Tom McSweeney is the hashtag, and on a weekly newsletter on Facebook and LinkedIn. Our email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872-555-197. That's email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872-555-197. The show is broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and widely available wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for your interest in Maritime Matters. Do keep in touch. Sound supervision by Justin Marr. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>